following teaching is from the Warrior's Heart Bible Study for Men. You can find us on the web at warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day. Once there are two ditch diggers and they are down in a deep hole digging away, doing what they could do because that's what they've been hired to do. And one of them was whining and fussing about what hard work it was and why in the world they couldn't be up on the top in the fresh air and the sunshine and doing the supervising work. And one of the guys told his buddy, yeah, that's right, you ought to be the one up there telling people what to do, not being down here in the ditch digging this old hole. And that guy thought, uh, after he got a little bit emboldened by his buddy, he says, I'm going to go up there and tell that supervisor that he ought to be down here digging that hole. And, well, I, I ought to be up there telling people what to do. Yeah, you go up there and do that. So he climbed up out of the hole, dirty, filthy, sweaty, with his shovel following behind him. And he walked up to the supervisor, who was very busy telling other people what to do, how to do it, giving assignments and putting teams together. He noticed, of course, out of the side of his eye that here was one of his ditch diggers that stand there, obviously wanted to talk to him. So he finally gave him some attention and says, what's up? And the ditch digger says, just want you to know that I should be up here doing this supervising stuff, not down in that hole digging that old, that old pit that anybody could do. I could be up here doing the supervising. And the supervisor said to him, no, nah, you can't do this. And the guy says, well, why not? And the supervisor says, you're not smart enough. And uh, the guy said, I'm smart enough. And the supervisor says, well, let's just do a little test. He says, no problem, let's do a little test. So he walked him over to a tree that was standing there, and the supervisor put his hand on the tree, and he told his ditch digger, okay, go ahead, now hit my hand. The ditch digger was shocked. He says, I'm not going to hit your hand, I'm going to hurt you. And the foreman says, don't worry about it, just go for it. Dan, give it, give it all you got, hit my hand. So the guy wound up and tried to hit him faster than what he was expecting, but the foreman knew exactly what was coming, and he pulled his hand out of the way right at the last second, and the ditch digger smashed his hand right into the bark of that tree, screaming with pain, holding his hand, and the supervisor says, I guess it's time for you to get back down there and get back to work. So the ditch digger got back in the hole, and he was uh, wincing with pain, and his buddy said, what happened? And the guy says, oh, he gave me a little test and said I wasn't smart enough to be supervisor. And his buddy says, you're smart enough. And the guy says, I know, I learned my lessons. I'm smart. And the guy says, of course you're smart. What kind of test did he give you? And the, the, the buddy thought, oh, this is going to be good. So he thought, looked around for a tree, and there wasn't a tree. So he, he put his hand in front of his face and says, go ahead. Hit my hand. Now, I don't know how you are after you've uh, been hurt or been knocked down or learned a lesson when you messed up. But probably... The toughest thing in the world is not just tackling a new challenge. But maybe the toughest thing in the world is getting back up after we known, have been known or been pointed out that we have messed up. So when we fail or when we face uh, some kind of disappointment and the frustration and the struggle is there, to get back into the game might be one of the hardest things on the human soul and spirit to actually try to accomplish something after you've been embarrassed, humiliated, and frustrated. Well, here's a picture of, of somebody who's probably wondering whether or not they should get up the next day or not. So the, whoever the engineer was who was involved with this over in Sochi, when uh, these snowflakes were supposed to open up and turn into the five Olympic rings, and one of them didn't turn up, 
Someone wrote a fabricated story that the, the next day the engineer uh, was found dead and the, 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 the people in his apartment complex had heard a, a great deal of ruckus in the middle of the night and someone said, yeah, they, they saw three big hooligans wandering around and so they probably beat up this guy who was an engineer. It was found that the story was false. And uh, and the person who told this story to me, I uh, I looked at them after it was proven to be false, and he was just a little embarrassed. I said, well, that's okay. People make up stories, but probably the truth is, if any of us were the engineer who caused the failure or were allowed to be the ones who were responsible for the failure, it'd be tough to get back into it. And I remembered a lesson that my uncle taught me. He was a boxer when he was in college, and, and he was telling us about all his exploits on, in the boxing ring, and he told us actually the hardest part is it's not getting in there and getting hit, and it's not in there facing somebody who's a really good boxer, but it's really when you get knocked down. The hardest thing in boxing is when you get knocked down is to get back up and fight again. So that's the hardest part in boxing. And uh, so I remember asking my uncle, I was just a little kid, I says, well, what do you do about that? He started laughing. He says, don't get knocked down. They had a little bit of wisdom and all that, but there's uh, probably that whole issue that, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna elevate everybody who stands on the platform. We're gonna cheer on those who come from behind and win the gold, or we're gonna be thrilled with someone who's never been on the platform before and they get a bronze. But what about the people who try? They train. They put everything they've got into this particular event, and then they fail. So here is Francis, downhill skier, a woman named Marie, and. She's been training for four years, but she goes off course and she crashes. They don't get another chance to get up and continue racing. They're disqualified. They don't even get a chance to get up again. So they live for the rest of their next four years or maybe for the rest of their life realizing, I have failed. I have messed up. I know the frustration of what it means to experience and face tragedy. I know what it's like to be disqualified. What do you do after that? Or here, there's something very special about Elise. She's speed skater for the Great for Great Britain, and in this speed skating event that she was in, she crashes along with this other uh, skater that was there. But what's amazing about Elise in this race during the Sochi Olympics? She got up and she started skating again. And of all things, she came in second for the silver medal. After she fell, and then she got up. But then all the judges looked at the replay and realized that she was at fault for causing the other skater to fall, so she was disqualified and given fourth place. Now you talk about facing adversity, getting up to do the most courageous thing a human being could possibly do, and then all of a sudden have that taken away as well. How would you like to be the hero of your nation? Mao is that uh, hero of, of Japan. She's the finest skater in a country that elevates speed skating to almost to the point where we elevate NFL or NBA or, or any of those kinds of great sports. I mean, that is Japan's heart and soul is figure skating. And she's the best in the nation. And she gets out there and she does the triple jump, which is her signature jump, and she messes up in the Olympics. And her scores just plummet way below anything that anybody thinks it's possible for someone like that to recover. Something about the human spirit is indomitable when we get a challenge. But when we accept the challenge and we are beaten down and we face disaster, 
getting back up again is extremely difficult. But I still think that probably at least at this point in the Sochi Winter Olympic Games, this next picture is probably the saddest and the most overwhelming of all. This is one of the Russian men's hockey players. He's one of the forwards of the team. And the Russians said very clearly early on before the Sochi Games ever commenced, if Russia were to win just one gold medal, if they could win men's ice hockey gold medal, they wouldn't have to win anything else. That would be, that would be enough to make the Sochi Games a great success. And now they won't even win a single medal because they've been eliminated with their failure to beat the Finnish team. Well, there's something very special about us as men. Probably every single one of us are starting to relive moments maybe in our life when we're thinking, yeah, along my spiritual journey where Jesus Christ is now the most important figure in all of the things that I do, when I live my Christian life, I don't want to do anything but be successful for him. Yet maybe in the back of our minds as we thought about the lesson from last week and we think about our sin and how sin is never really anything that's advertised or promoted, but it's usually something in secret that we think, as long as no other human being knows about it, then we're cool, we're good. We can just ignore it or deal with it from the standpoint of just setting it aside, but we forget that our theology then is very inaccurate, because God knows everything. God is every, every place. He, he's, he's been there when we chose to sin, even though people don't know about it, and very few people are familiar with it. We think that because people don't know, then we're okay to hide it. But we're learning from Scripture that no, God knows. And if we know and God knows, that's enough for us to take care of it. Well, let's get rid of our sin. Then what do we do after that? So many of us as men, that's all Satan really needs to do is to trip us up one time, humiliate us one time, frustrate us one time, and most of us will never get back up. We will not climb back into the saddle. We will not be the kinds of men who are going to be taking it on and being stronger than when we failed the first time. Most of us men, Satan knows that if he can just trip us up once, he can go on to the next couple of guys, get us to fail and foul up, and we won't get back into it again. Well, Scripture keeps on telling us that one of the things that we know about God is that he wants us to keep trying and trying and trying again. Eventually, we're going to hit that nail right on the head, And we're going to land it. And we're going to put together something that God wants us to do. And then we will know for sure it certainly wasn't us. Because I'm the kind of guy when I'm left to my own desserts, I will mess up. But because God is the one who forgives me and by his grace keeps me going, then he will get the credit for doing what has happened in my life. Perseverance is a key thing. Getting up after we've been knocked down. So this particular passage of Scripture to me is one that we as guys ought to put in our wallet and carry with us all the time. In Joshua chapter 8, verses 1 and following, all the way up before we get to the renewal of the covenant, we have this amazing passage of Scripture where the tactical entry into battle becomes a focal point. And this is one of those great, great swashbuckling chapters. But we all know that one of the greatest parts of this particular battle is it comes out of failure. When the entire nation before God is wondering how in the world can we overcome an obstacle like Jericho and watch you, God, use us and give to us this city and this amazing fighting machine and give it to us without any loss. And now we come and, and we, we face the pipsqueaks at AI 
And all of a sudden, we not only lose the battle, but 36 of our comrades now lay dead. In that frustration, God speaks to Joshua and tells him it's a matter of sin, just by one. Sin by one pollutes the entire camp, and God's judgment comes upon the nation of Israel very, very powerfully. Well, as God speaks to Joshua, he says to him, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Now, I don't know if you have ever been haunted by these words, but every time I read them in Scripture, I'm almost thinking, why does God always say that? Don't be afraid and don't be discouraged. He tells us don't be afraid because there's something to be afraid about. And don't be discouraged because, yeah, that's exactly how we're feeling. Whenever we've been knocked down, whenever we got into battle very confident, and we failed, and we've gone through terrible misery, of course we're afraid. We don't want to try this again. How many guys want to take on a task knowing that we're going to fail? The, the, the thought and the hint of failure is there. None of us want to do that. But then when God speaks a word to us, it is very, very powerful. And the word that the Scripture says here is that the Lord said to Joshua, And the word Lord, again, all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When we see that in our English Bible, we know it refers to Jehovah or Yahweh, the God who makes promises and keeps those promises. So when that God uses that name and speaks to us very directly, don't be discouraged, don't be afraid. It's probably worth our attention to say, okay, God, I've disobeyed you before, I've ignored you, I've left you out of my life. I was not careful with regard to righteousness. Sin crept in. We were overconfident. Somebody in our camp we thought was loyal messed up. They were very, very selfish. So now, God, I will listen because you have spoken to me nothing greater than the word of God when we are feeling pretty lousy. Joshua couldn't pick up his Bible because he didn't have it. But God spoke to him in audible terms. What an amazing thought and a privilege many of us would think. But how many times when we have been discouraged, when we have been afraid, when we have messed up, when the sin that we've been hiding, or the sin somewhere that uh, among the people that we love has been demonstrated, we, we look at our Bible there on the coffee table. We look at the Bible there on our desk. We look at the Bible there at our dresser. Do we pick it up and see what does God have to say to me in my time of lowness? When I'm down on the ground, what does God want to say to me? So too often we just feel sorry for ourselves, but God is speaking a very encouraging word. So this time God says to Joshua, take the entire army. He gives him a, he gives him a tactical move that God says, this is how we're going to take AI. Don't worry about it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you're victorious. And this is what God says. He doesn't say, I will deliver the king and the city in your hands. He says, I have delivered them into your hands. What an amazing phenomenon that God is going to now say to Joshua, don't worry, I know you're afraid to go back. I know you're overwhelmed with the thought that you guys lost this battle. But I want you to know that the victory is already in your hand. What an encouraging word that Joshua hears from Jehovah God. Now he says something here that's a little bit different from when, he were, when they were going to go in to, to attack Jericho. And I think every one of us here from the lesson last week should mark these words that God says next. And God says, go ahead and take plunder for yourselves. He didn't say that, Jericho. He says, Jericho is mine. Everything in it belongs to me. Honor that. Put it into the treasury. Burn it so you guys won't have any use for it because it all belongs to me. Live a life of precise obedience. 
Can you imagine if Achan had just resisted temptation and waited for a few more days? Can you imagine what that would be like? If Achan had just waited for a few more days, denied himself satisfaction because he wanted to obey God, not because he's thinking, maybe if I deny myself now, God will reward me. That's not the instruction. Just obey God precisely now. And God will reward us when he wants to, when the time is right. Be satisfied completely and completely content with God now. And whatever God wants to bless us with down the road, he will do that. What a phenomenal thought if we had just waited a little longer. I don't know how many men that I've had in my office and probably the first time they've ever cried in front of another human being. I don't know how many times the story is the same. Bruce, my wife and I, before we were married, we just did not resist. And because we were unfaithful before the Lord and the promises of purity that we gave to each other, we gave to our parents, we gave to our friends, we told our pastor, we lied to our pastor, we lied to our friends. And now that we've been married for five, six, seven years, ten, twelve years, it's coming back to haunt us. If we had just waited a few more months, a few more weeks, but we just thought that we were so in love, we were already committed to each other, And now it's coming back to haunt us. There's something incredibly precious about what God says is my instruction for purity, for obedience, for following what I want you to do. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't let the future bother you. Just do what I want you to do in a precise obedience now. And let me worry about the future. I'll take care of it. I will never deny you. Don't be impatient. Don't be selfish. Don't be narcissistic. Just trust me, and I will bless you beyond your wildest imaginations. Now, there's something pretty special about this whole idea of this second chance, and God tells Joshua, like he will tell all of us, let's deal with sin. And one of the most amazing things is, no matter how awful sin is, what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, it wipes it out as if it never had occurred. And if you are here today and you don't know that kind of freedom, no matter what your sin has been in the past, no matter what the failing has been, no matter what the desire has been in your past, you're thinking it can never be rectified. That doesn't come from God. That comes from the pit of hell. That comes from the heart of sin that says you are no longer good enough, that you can never, ever be restored. You can never be reconciled. You can never be redeemed. That that doesn't come from God. In fact, if we have experienced the depth of that kind of heartache, where we've been terrified that, oh no, someone's going to ask me to serve. Oh no, someone's going to ask me to step in a position of leadership. Oh no, what happens if they find out about? How do I deal with this own wounded conscience of mine? One of the most amazing things is that grace is not just a song that we sing. Mercy is not something that our kids tell us in a poem. Grace and mercy are what we experience as a follower of Jesus Christ because the power of the cross and the power of his death and the amazing miracle of redemption can make any of us clean before Almighty God because Jesus Christ and his payment for sacrifice is that powerful. 
So this is the same picture we have here in Joshua 7 and Joshua 8. Same picture. God takes care of sin. One sin is out of the picture. The second chance begins. And we who know that we are on a second chance opportunity, trust God with an intensity and a fervor and a precision that we have probably never, ever known before we had ever gone through that experience. Well, they have to understand the plan that God uh, has given through Joshua, and Joshua makes it very clear, we're going to take the entire army. 30,000 fighting men. We find out later there's only only 12,000 men and women in all of the city of Ai. This seems like overkill. It's almost like the first time when they thought, oh, let's just take two or 3,000 men. Don't bother the rest of the army. They were outnumbered four to one. They put themselves in a bad situation with sin and overconfidence. They were totally humiliated and defeated. And now God reverses the situation. I want you to go into battle with an advantage of three to one against the enemy that humiliated you just days ago. God's strategy for Jericho and God's strategy for Ai, completely different. Same God, same element as far as tactics, simple obedience to God's plan. But from a human perspective, something completely different. We can never outguess God's strategy. The only thing we could do is to develop that intimate relationship with Him so that we know Him so well that we know exactly what He wants us to do with the life that He's given us to live. 30,000 of His best fighting men, the assessment was not a problem. He knew how many men he had. He also knew who had the best capability. That was not a problem. Joshua knew that. He's a good military leader. He also knew not only his men and the assessment of their ability, but he knew very well what these people in AI and the fighting men of AI, what they were thinking. Their overconfidence. Now because of a past victory that was allowed by God to happen for the purposes of only dealing with his people, but allowing those who would soon be defeated and delivered into the hands of his own people were allowed to think that way. Sometimes maybe someone would look at this and say, for the nation of Israel in chapter 7, and now for the fighting men of Ai in chapter 8, we have the same kind of symptom. When we are overconfident in ourselves, the presence of Almighty God is absent. The Lord your God will give it to you your hands. And this is something where God now presents himself with the two names that he has given to us. The Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah, the God who makes promises and keeps them, now matched up with the word God, capital G, little o, little d, the name for God, Elohim, used in uh, Genesis, the God created the heavens and the earth, the God who can create anything and amazing things out of nothing. This is a God who matches up with a God who keeps his promises, Man, you talk about a fighting duo. The God who keeps all his promises is the same God who could do whatever he needs with all the resources necessary to create out of nothing in order to make what he promises happen. Do what the Lord has commanded to you. See to it, you have my orders. Those great words from Joshua to those that were following him, amazing. This is not just his clever idea. This is something that God gave to him. And good relationships with those who are following God, they believe that their leaders are going to be used by power, very powerfully by Almighty God to bring His will to the organization or to the ministry. We trust God to work through our leaders in order to have His will for all of us made known and very clear. Well, it's the execution of the ambush that's really critical. <clears throat> and I, uh, 
I'm the kind of guy who thinks that, boy, when I, when I think of ambush, I think of the, the whole line of who's uh, on the, the top of the food chain. And the predators in Africa are amazing when God has given them that capacity. And they're not really that successful. Maybe only one or two out of every ten tries are they successful even at a good ambush. But they still know that's their best option. So when Joshua set up his fighting men in order to launch this tremendous attack, the king of Ai, overconfident again because of his last battle, decides we're not going to wait. We're just going to go out and attack these guys. We beat him before. We will beat him again. But he did not know about the ambush. Scriptures make that very clear. The intelligence on the part of Ai, the king, and his men was really, really lacking. So they were lured away from the city, the one that they were actually trying to defend. And God gives Joshua this tremendous opportunity to demonstrate a visual, a visible symbolic presentation of his stage presence. Leadership has something to do about the confidence of the one that God has chosen when people can have certainty in who that person is. Men of AI, they had absolutely No chance. And 12,000 of them died that day. Well, what's it like to be defeated, get knocked down, overwhelmed? Can we actually get up? The most courageous thing that any of us can ever do. Well, we all have said, we've all felt guilty about it. We've all tried to hide it. But once we get it all cleansed and cleaned up and taken care of, will we ever get back up again and engage the battle? I don't know how many of you guys like the movie Top Gun, but I, I really like the movie Top Gun, but I don't like the whole movie. I don't even like the last 20 minutes. So I, I've, seen, I've seen that movie so many times that I've actually fast-forwarded. Okay, yeah, Maverick's a cocky, overconfident, obnoxious jerk. Okay, fast-forward. Oh, yeah, okay, now he's falling in love with the trainer. Okay, let's fast-forward through all that. Okay, now he loses his partner. That's really sad, and he feels responsible and okay, he's going through a lot of time of deep, deep, deep depression. Okay, let's fast forward that. Okay, now he's at graduation. He doesn't get top gun because he's been distracted because of the death of his friend. But he does graduate, he does come back, and says, okay, I'll go ahead and do this. And so they enter into battle, and he's always thinking, and he's frustrated. But he, he's, he's, he's on, the, he's on the, the aircraft carrier, as Tomcat F-14. And with his new navigator in his seat, they're, they're, they're the backup team. And the, the pair of other guys are up there flying, and, and suddenly they are engaged in a dogfight. And they're thinking on their radar, well, it's two against two. But the MiGs are so small, and they're flying in such close formation. All of a sudden, when they get close enough, the two MiGs on the radar, suddenly each of them splits, and there's four of them. Now it's two against four. And then all of a sudden, his wingman, he's blasted out of the sky, and he's going down for a crash landing. He's left alone. They call up for the backup. So Maverick's on the, on, the, on the aircraft carrier, and he takes off. He's going through all the, the motions, but he can hear in his mind. He's really frustrated. And, and the guy who's, who's up there by himself fighting all these other MiGs, he's afraid because he knows that when Maverick gets in, he might just back off like he's done in training because he just can't get over the loss of his friend. Maverick engages in the battle, and suddenly he's overwhelmed with the, the backwash because of uh, this close quarters business of the dogfight and his, his plane gets out of control a little bit. It's the same thing he experienced in training when he lost his buddy and they had a crash landing. So he pulls out of the battle. He says, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And he leaves the battle. 
And the one friend that he had in that whole business, the last F-14 is in the battle, the guy says, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. We couldn't count on him, he's leaving. Everybody on the aircraft carrier is thinking, man, these guys are getting close. The battle's getting closer, and if those MiGs knock out these F-14s, they're going to come after the aircraft carrier. Everyone's yelling and screaming. And the captain has only one focus on his mind. Everybody else is thinking, ah, we're going to be attacked. Everybody else is panicking. Even the, the one F-14 pilot up there who's, who's fighting for his life, his plane's already damaged. He's yelling and, and, and complaining about Maverick, and the captain has only one focus. Maverick, get back into the battle. Maverick, re-engage. Re-engage. Man, I, I hear the captain zero in on the one guy who's failed in the past. The one guy who has incredible talent. Yeah, it was devastating. Yeah, it was a mess. Yeah, it was terrible to lose his buddy. But that doesn't matter because now is now. And there's a chance to stop a war. There's a chance to stop an aircraft carrier of the United States of America being blasted out of the water. Maverick re-engaged and something snaps and suddenly he gets re-engaged with a challenge and the, the orders of his captain. He flies back in there and he, he splashes one of the enemy. He splashes another one of the enemy. He's on the wingman. He's serving as the wingman of this one guy who then attacks another one. And Maverick splashes a third. Now he's a, an ace in one single battle because he's re-engaged. He's now an ace. And the last MiGs fly off because they're afraid that these F-14 Tomcats with their top gun pilots have bested them so well. Well, gentlemen, I don't know what has happened in your past, but God has given you tremendous gifts, tremendous lives, tremendous people around you. You can re-engage even after sin through Jesus Christ. And for all of us who are here in this room, we're not just asking that God would bless our lives and bless our families. We, we are committed to something very special here, and that's the city of Houston. Sin has crippled the capacity of those who follow Jesus Christ to the point where this city is not experiencing the touch of God like it could. One of the things that we here at Houston's First Baptist, and for all of you who are part of other churches that we're delighted that you're here, and many of you have pastors who have engaged with our pastor here, and we have a very special prayer. And that is that God would not just bless individual lives, but God would bless the city of Houston. And we want to pray and engage the city of Houston so that God would bring revival to this city. It's not going to happen just because a few pastors preach it from the pulpit. When the great revivals of which there were two here in the United States in this history occurred, both of them occurred because of men like you, laymen, People who are not in the ministry for their occupation. Men who just believe, God, I'm just a simple guy. I just do this for a living. And yeah, I've messed up and you've forgiven me. And I thank you for that. But it's just guys like that who said, man, I want to meet with my buddy over here. And said, you know, the Lord has just really begun to, begun to give me revival in my life. I just was wondering how it's going for you. And You know, same thing's happening for me. In fact, I hear that Charlie and Frank over there God's doing something. Let's, let's get together and see what God is telling us. And all of a sudden you get this nucleus of guys who get together and say, God's doing something special in our lives. He's reviving us. 
with this second chance. He's picking us up off the ground from our sin and restoring us. Let's, let's find out how many other guys we can get into this thing. Before you know it, it grows exponentially. It's always been through layman, and both times it's been through prayer. Now, we're not going to trust formula, but we trust Almighty God to do whatever he wants, and maybe what he will want to do is to do it again. And maybe not for the entire nation, but maybe if we begin with our city, something very treasured can happen. Before we go into our table talk for you guys, I'd like for us to pause here and pray. And and uh, Eric's going to come up here, and Eric's going to lead us in prayer that maybe God could use us somehow as a group of men to, be, to, to maybe be a spark, to be, to be this beginning, to get up off the ground, get up after we've been knocked down and say, God, we want, we want very much to be top gun in your eyes. Help us to re-engage and maybe collectively to see this city brought to him through an amazing revival. If you're, if you're physically able to take a knee and, and kneel down, um, historically it was just a sign of saying, I... I submit myself to a Lord. I surrender who I am and what I am. And if you're physically able to do that in our heart, that's the posture of the heart no matter what the body is doing. Lord God, you are the maker of heaven and earth. Father, at the beginning of time and at the end of time, you are the only one that will be. Father, you are the one true God. God, you are our fortress. You are the strong tower. You are the rock. You are the Redeemer who has set the captives free. Father, we are here and gathered. Um, It's before work. It's the middle of a week. There's traffic outside. There's to-do lists that are already going in my head and probably everyone else's head for this day. And yet we know, Father, that we are not meant to live detached from you. We're not meant to live just for that to-do list. But God, there is something bigger going on, and we are asking you right now, take, take the areas that we have been silent in and give us your voice. Take the areas that we have run ahead of you, Father, and, and pull us backwards. And God, we ask that you would work in our lives, through our lives, into this city. God, we ask for you to do what only you can do, which is bring life and bring hope and restore families, restore marriages, restore purity. God, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, Lord, the heart to trust and obey you. That we would not live an American life in a country. We love our country, God. But, Lord, we would say, Father, have your way in this nation, have your way in this city. Let us be your mouthpiece. Let us be your hands and feet. May we not be known as silent. May we not be known as surrendered. May we not be known as passive. That we sit back in shame for some mistake we made last year, this week, or ten years ago. Lord God, may we bring all that we are and lay it before you. Father, rise up. Call us up. Fill us up. Send us out, Lord God. Advance your kingdom. We need it. If you don't do it, We can't do it on our own, God. So we are privileged to be gathered on our knees before you, to ask you to do what only you can do, and that is bring revival to the city of Houston. Start here. 
not selfishly, but God, if you don't start somewhere, so we want the, the blessing of you starting here. We trust you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for joining us on this week's podcast. We hope you can join us in person. We meet Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. in the Fellowship Center of Houston's First Baptist Church. For more details and to register, you can visit us on the web at warriorsheart.org. That's warriorsheart.org. We hope you have a great day.